You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Could you imagine winning a major award without knowing it? Whether that's at work or maybe just a public award. In, in today's day and age with technology and, and how fast word gets out on the internet, it's hard to imagine how that would be. But back in the 1960s, that's exactly what happened to actress Haley Mills. As a 14-year-old, she played Pollyanna in the 1960 movie under the same name. And at the 1961 Oscar ceremony, she received the Academy Juvenile Award, also known as the Juvenile Oscar, a special award for performers under the age of 18. But she wasn't there to receive the award. In fact, she didn't even know she won the award until it showed up in the mail on her, at her doorstep. She was at boarding school in England, and when she opened the package, she said, oh, that's sweet. What is that? And someone next to her had to explain to her, um, that's an Oscar, that's a really special award. She said later in an interview that she actually didn't fully appreciate the award until about 40 years later when she was participating in some Hollywood ceremony. When asked if the award changed the way she viewed her career, she replied this, quote, it didn't change the way I viewed my career, and maybe that was one of the reasons why my parents decided not to tell me about it and therefore not to send me or let me go to the ceremony, because I was very young. It was their attitude towards me that when I was a child, that I should be kept as unaffected as possible by the world I was now moving in. So I went off to my boarding school, and when I came back from making a movie in Hollywood, I went back to boarding school. She didn't see her Oscar as a big deal. And so it, it didn't affect her view of herself or her attitudes towards life. And, and frankly, from an actress, that's very refreshing, isn't it? To hear that a parent had enough principle to say, nah, you're going to get a big head if you get this, so we're going to keep you in school. Wow. But what I'm afraid of is that her words describe the attitude many Christians have toward their salvation. They just don't see it as a big deal. It's like they were, they were living their lives and then met Jesus and then went back to living their lives. The life-changing event seemingly doesn't affect how they live every day. And so they live in a state of spiritual ignorance, blissfully unaware of what salvation means for them. Their lack of knowledge then does not lead to spiritual change or spiritual fruit. And as I've studied this text this week and prayed over this, I, I've prayed that, that no one here would have that be true of them. But the reality is, it's so easy, isn't it, to just go through life not really comprehending what Jesus did to us and for us and how that, how that then changes even the minute decisions that I make. The problem really is with our thinking. What we believe about the Lord Jesus, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about how to live in the world that God created. And unlike Haley Mills' Oscar award, our salvation should profoundly affect the way we view ourselves and the world around us. And the passage of scripture that we're in this morning, Colossians 2, 8 through 10, targets this key problem by teaching us what Christ accomplished for us. 
And it emphasizes a, a really single key truth. And we saw this truth last week in verse 10. It's this, you are complete in Christ. That's the title for today's sermon. We are complete in Jesus, which means that he is sufficient for every need. There is nothing we lack that he cannot provide. There is no temptation that can give us something that, that Jesus can't do infinitely better. We're also complete in Jesus because he's victorious. He is the head of all principalities and powers. He conquered sin and death and the devil, the enemies of the believer. He conquered them. And so we're complete in him. And what Paul is working toward in this overall section of Colossians 2 is this response. Don't turn away from Jesus. Don't look for spiritual completion apart from him. You have everything you need through him. So how does Colossians 2, 11 through 15 fit into this section? Well, this actually answers a very simple question. It answers the question, how are you complete in him? For the Colossian believers, this was a revolutionary truth. Let's try to go back in our time machines if we, if we could and put ourselves in their sandals and think like the Colossians. They have well-respected people in their community and probably in their church services telling them that Jesus is just the start of their spiritual journey. That once they come to Jesus, that's great, that's basic. Now they need to add something else to him to make spiritual progress. They need to appease spiritual powers, which meant worshiping angels. They needed to discipline their bodies to, to overcome the temptation to sin. So, so that meant asceticism or, or, or punishing your body. They needed to strictly follow certain regulations for holiness, like dietary laws and observing specific holidays. And so they, they've come to faith in Christ, and now they're trying to obey all these things. And then this letter shows up. And it's from this guy named Paul. And they've never met him, but their pastor really loves him and talks a lot about him. And Paul writes this letter and drops a truth bomb on them and says, You're complete in Jesus. And their response is, wait a minute. If that's true, then we've been duped. Nah, it can't be true. And if they're having this, this conversation back to Paul, a natural question would be, Paul, how are we completing Christ? You make this statement that we are, but how? And Paul says, here's how. Here are four ways that you are completing Christ. And it's all because of what Jesus did for you. Because your spiritual completeness, my spiritual completeness, it's not something that I brought about. It's something that God accomplished through Christ. And as we get into this text, we're going to see some incredible things. This section is loaded with gospel truth. And what's interesting to me is that Paul applies the truths found in verses 11 through 15. He applies these truths in sections to come. Each key point that we discuss today, each of the four main points, will appear later on in the letter. And I'll do my best in the future to show you how. This passage focuses on what happened to us as believers. The believer is actually in the, in the grammatical place of emphasis. But yet, we are just beneficiaries of what God did through Christ. And as we approach this text, I want to encourage you to think about it maybe in a little bit of an unusual way. Think about it as a protective fence that you've constructed around your home or around your community. 
And each verse seamlessly flows one into the next like the rails of a fence. But each truth is a fence post that when we build it and link to the next one, we eventually encircle us, not to box us in, but to protect us. Because when we come to understand these truths in this passage, they offer the believer incredible spiritual protection. So what we're going to do today is, is, if I can borrow the analogy, is inspect our fence. We're going to walk from fence post to fence post and follow the flow of the passage to see how secure our salvation is and to see how we are complete in Christ. And then at the end, we'll draw three points of application. Let's start in verses 11 through 12. In him, Paul writes, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So how are we completing Christ? Well, first, we are complete because we were circumcised with Christ. Verse 11 begins with a little prepositional phrase, in him, which refers to the believer's union with Jesus. We've talked about that several times, and I keep hitting that because it's so important. So what follows in this passage is a description of our relationship to Christ. But Paul begins in a surprising place, at least for us in our day today, because the the first topic of conversation is circumcision. And this analogy of spiritual circumcision is probably not familiar to us, And it's really not popular in Paul's writings. This is the only place in Paul's writings that he talks about it in this way. He has a lot to say about circumcision in Galatians, but it's a totally different idea. So why does he talk about spiritual circumcision here? And the short answer, and trust me when I say the short answer, the short answer is because circumcision is a picture of how the power of sin has been broken when we come to Christ. It pictures the power of sin being broken when we come to faith in Christ. To understand this picture, we have to understand what circumcision is. And before you panic, we will be discreet, okay? Circumcision is a medical procedure that strips the foreskin from the male parts. It was primarily a Jewish practice commanded by God in Genesis 17 as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 11 gives us the details of this circumcision. And the first thing we know or notice is that it's not a physical action. Paul immediately clarifies that. It's a circumcision made without hands. It's a metaphor. He's not talking about a a medical circumcision, but a spiritual one. And if it's not made by human hands, this is an action that God did to us. The second detail is that it strips away the body of sin. This shows us what circumcision removed. Just as a medical circumcision removes literal skin, spiritual circumcision removes the body of flesh or the old man. And there was a tangent that I wanted to chase here and and my wife talked me off the ledge. And so I'm gonna try to keep it concise for you. Every person is born into this world under the domination of sin. We call it the sin nature. In Romans 5 and 6, Paul refers to it as being in Adam. 
We are part of Adam's category, if you could call it that. And at salvation, we switch categories. We now belong to Christ. No longer are we belonging to the old man, Adam, but we're part of the new man, Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. In Christ, you are a new creature or new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so when we come to faith in Christ and are united to him, the power of sin has been broken. But as you know by experience, we still wrestle against sin. We still have the sin nature present in our hearts. The Bible calls this the flesh. And so the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin still lingers. So so we could describe the Christian life this way. The Christian life is the process of laying aside the old way of living and putting on a new lifestyle that matches who you are in Christ. You're no longer part of Adam's lineage. You're no longer in the flesh any longer. You're not the old man. You're now in Christ. And yet there's this part of us that's attracted to the old way of living. And so we battle against sin. And what is on the screen here, this quote, this, this is really what chapter 3 is all about. When you understand your position in Christ, we then have to live out that position And Paul gives us a lot of instructions on how to do that. Well, how was the old self cut away? And at the end of verse 11, it says, by the circumcision of Christ, which points to Jesus' death on the cross. By the circumcision of Christ. If you compare Romans 6, 1 through 4 with this passage, it seems pretty clear that it refers to Christ's death on the cross. Jesus' death broke the power of sin and believers become spiritually circumcised when they come to faith in him. Well, how did this circumcision take place? Verse 12 describes the process, the process of circumcision. And in this verse, Paul lists two key actions that were part of the spiritual procedure. And what's really fascinating is the two verbs have the word with attached to the front of them in the Greek. It's a suffix. And they're very unusual words. They're found only in Christian writings. Uh, being raised together with is found only in Christian writings. Because what happened when we became united to Christ is that we participated in his death and resurrection. Not literally. We weren't literally there 2,000 years ago. But spiritually speaking, we became one with him. So the two parts of this process. First, you were buried with Christ in baptism. You died with Jesus. You were immersed into him. That means that when Jesus died, you died also. And Romans 6 says that you died to sin. Now, the other thing that this phrase shows us is the importance of baptism. And we need to pause here for a moment to clarify this because we don't want to misunderstand. Baptism doesn't save you. This passage doesn't teach that buried with Christ in baptism. But what water baptism does is picture your salvation to Christ. What is baptism? Baptism is a public, visible declaration of what has happened between you and Christ in your heart. We can see when a person is immersed underwater. If you come in a month, there'll be some more folks that are gonna get baptized. They're gonna go into this baptistry They're going to be dunked under the water and they're going to come up. We can see that, right? Can you see when someone comes to faith in Christ? 
No. And so what God has done is chosen water baptism as the sign or the symbol that's my public confession of what's happened on the inside. Though water baptism is not meant for salvation, it is meant for identification. How else is the church supposed to know who claims to be a follower of Jesus? Everyone can say that. But when someone comes forward and says, I believe in Christ, here's what I believe, and I'm willing to be baptized, that shows publicly and marks out publicly those who have faith in Christ. So baptism is very important, and it illustrates the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, right? Because when someone is immersed in the water, we bury them and put them under the water, and then we leave them there. I'm kidding. We bury them, and then we bring them up, right? Some people, when they're getting ready for baptism, are real nervous. And I like to make jokes like that, like, oh, don't worry, I'll do the first half. It takes them a second, like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Hope you're good at holding your breath. No, it's a picture, right? That just as Christ was buried in the heart of the earth and rose again to newness of life, so also there's a spiritual change that takes place in the believer. And verse 12 finishes with the second part. You were buried together with Christ in baptism. You were raised together with Christ by faith. Christ entered the tomb but rose again, and baptism completes this picture. And the last little phrase gives some clarification. How were we raised to life? Are we raised to life when we're baptized? No. We are raised to life by faith. By faith. Faith is what saves, not baptism. What do we have faith in? Well, verse 12, the end of verse 12 says that we have faith in the working of God or in the powerful activity of God who raised him from the dead. So our faith rests in God's saving work as explained in the gospel story. That Jesus is the God-man who came from heaven to earth, was virgin born, lived a perfect life, and died as a substitute in your place on the cross. And then was buried and rose again. Came to life. And we believe that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, God will also raise to life all those who trust in Christ by faith. Spiritual circumcision then is a powerful picture of how the old self is cut away through your union with Christ. And the key point that we'll revisit later on is that sin no longer has dominion over you. Yes, it's still tempting. Yes, we still sin. But the power, the grip, the slavery of sin is broken and stripped away. Now, as you look at the last part of verse 12, the phrase mentions resurrection. And Paul picks up on that key verse and flows into the next point. The second way that you're complete in Christ is that you were made alive together with Christ. Look at verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, referring to God, made alive together with him, referring to Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. So the second way that you are complete in Christ is because you were made alive together with Christ. This is another with verb. We were raised with Christ and made alive. And the reason that we're spiritually alive is because Jesus is alive. If Jesus remained in that tomb, we could claim to be his follower all day long, but there would be no life there. And that's 
I think you know this, but, but it's worth mentioning that that's the difference between us and every other religion in the world, right? We don't serve a dead founder of a religion. We serve a living Savior. And 1 Peter 1 says, because he is alive, our hope is alive also. In this verse, there are two points that describe your resurrection. And Paul starts by talking about who you used to be and you being dead in your trespasses. That's not a pretty picture. And sometimes we, we like to kind of move on a little bit, like, oh, yeah, I was dead in my trespasses. All right, let's move to the good stuff. But if we don't understand how dead dead means, then we can't really appreciate how alive alive means. We were dead in our trespasses. These trespasses killed us. There was no life and no hope. What, what is a trespass? My mind immediately goes to the woods that were across the street from where my parents live, where I grew up. Because there were posted, like it seemed like every fourth tree, <laughs> no trespassing. Okay, I got it. Whoever owns this land does not want anyone crossing the boundary and going onto their property. That's what, trans, that's what tr- uh, trespassing means. God's law is our moral boundary. And every time we sin and disobey that law, we step across the line. We trespass against God. So we were dead in our trespasses. And then Paul mentions circumcision again. You were also dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And this probably has both a literal and a spiritual meaning here. He's kind of speaking tongue in cheek. Because most of the Colossians were Gentiles and therefore they were literally uncircumcised. And as Ephesians 2.12 draws out, the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, were outside of the covenant of God with Israel. They were outside the promises. Ephesians 2.12, they were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, and on a spiritual level, these people and you and I are spiritually dead because we were enslaved to the sins of the flesh. The old man had not been cut off and stripped away yet. That happened at salvation, right? Spiritual circumcision frees a person from the power of sin. So to be spiritually uncircumcised means that you're still under the control, the domination of sin. So we could summarize it this way. The unsaved person, apart from Christ, is characterized by death and dominated by sin. Well, that's real pleasant. That is the condition of every human being apart from Christ. And I can't overemphasize this enough. If you've not trusted Christ by faith, you are spiritually dead. You've stepped across God's boundary. You've sinned against his law. Your present condition is dead and your future destiny is eternal death. Dead people can't move, can't breathe, can't feel their way out of the grave. They can't do anything. And the modern notion of people being pretty good or or slowly finding their way to the light, that's just totally wrong. You're dead. Spiritually dead people can't do anything until they are made alive. You don't need rehabilitation. You need resurrection. Until... You accept the Bible's teaching about being dead, you will not see the need to receive Christ and be made alive. If you don't think you're in danger, you don't need to be saved. If you're not dead, you don't need to be made alive. 
But when you come to understand, wow, I really am dead in my trespasses, there's hope because Christ is the only way to receive spiritual life. And the second half of verse 13 shows us how we are made alive. It's because of God's forgiveness. And notice what it says. Having forgiven you how many trespasses? All. The word forgive here comes from the same root word as the word grace. There are several different words for forgiveness in the Greek language. And this one comes from the word grace. God's grace is the basis of his forgiveness. God proved himself to be gracious by pardoning you and I from your sins, from my sins. We could even phrase this, we could even render this uh, phrase like this. God graced you with a complete pardon for every trespass. What a glorious truth that all your trespasses are forgiven. And this is not a partial pardon, right? All your trespasses, every single one of them are forgiven by his grace. Ephesians 2.5 is almost a perfect parallel for this verse. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And the comparison there is between forgiveness and grace, and there's really no difference. It's God's grace that saves us by forgiveness. And that's, that's the hope of the gospel. That's the good news of the good news, is that you and I do not have to remain spiritually dead. We can be forgiven by a gracious God and be made spiritually alive. Paul then keys on the word forgiveness, and he raises the question, un, he, 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 answers the un, he answers the question, how can you be forgiven? Verse 14 explains this with two incredible illustrations. Look at verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the third way that you are completing Christ is that your offenses were removed at the cross. How are you complete? How are you forgiven? It's your offenses were removed at the cross. Now this first illustration is that of a record being expunged. Let's think about it here for a moment. God wiped clean your record of wrongs. The verb wiped out does not refer to that old ABC show, wipe out, or a slip and slide wipe out, but it refers to erasing something totally removing it so as to, to leave no trace. Peter actually uses this word in Acts 3.19. And as an aside, when you're studying your Bibles and you have a cross-reference, sometimes the cross-reference helps you to understand the word in the text that you're studying. Here's what Peter says in Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Well, that's a, that's a great word picture, isn't it? to be totally blotted out. God wiped away the handwriting of requirements that was against us. There's been a lot of ink spilled about what exactly this phrase refers to. But it's, it's incredibly powerful if we unpack it. The word for handwriting shows up in secular literature. And it was a handwritten document, specifically a certificate of indebtedness. I love how the, the dictionary has to say handwritten as if people in the first century had, you know, typewriters or something. Handwritten document 
specifically a certificate of indebtedness. It was a record of debts. And, and there's actually something that we have in today's world that perfectly illustrates this. It's an IOU. That's exactly what this is. An IOU simply records what one person owes to another. Well, this IOU, this record in the text, is between us and God. And the word requirements is the same word as decree. In Luke 2.1, remember Caesar Augustus made a decree? It's the same word, that all the world should be taxed. These requirements refer to the decrees of God, God's moral laws placed on us that we are required to obey. That's our responsibility back to God. But do we obey God's law perfectly? No, remember, we're dead in our trespasses. We break God's law over and over again. And so God's decrees that were originally given to us to guide our conduct now stand against us. They condemn us, which is why Paul finishes this phrase with saying that these things were against us. They're hostile to us. They're contrary to us. Because they show us where we have fallen short. So every human being owes obedience to God because we are his creatures made in his image. And in his grace, he's given us his righteous decrees to guide us in how to please him. And yet what do we do with those righteous decrees? What do we do with that kindness? We spurn it. We say we don't want it. We don't need it. I'm going to live my life the way I want to, God. And so his decrees now stand against us. We have rejected him and broken his law. Imagine then, if you can, that, that every time we violate God's law, those sins are recorded along with the rule that we broke and the date of the offense. You know, May 28th, 2023, 9.02 a.m. The sin of jealousy, thou shalt not be jealous. 9.03 a.m., the sin of anger. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And the longer you live, the longer your list of sins, the longer the list grows, the more in debt to God you become. Your IOU is now hopelessly long, and hopeless is the word. There's no way possible that you could pay him back for all of those offenses. That certificate of debt stands against you in God's court. So what does God do? In his matchless grace, he canceled the debt. He said, I'm not going to require it from you. I'm going to cancel it. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to expunge your record. To expunge is to erase completely. In our nation, an expungement order blots out a crime, and it's as if it never happened. It will never show up on that criminal's record. It will never be used against him or her in the future. That's what God did to your IOU. He expunged your sins from the record. When he looks at us as his children, when he looks at me, he doesn't see Zach Sparkman, convicted felon, 500,781,622 crimes. He doesn't see that. He sees Zach Sparkman, record expunged, fully pardoned. Now the second part of verse 14 shows us the legal action God took place to pardon us and expunge the record. 
He nailed your record to the cross. He nailed your record to the cross. Josh, my clicker's not working, so you're just gonna have to help me with that. He took the IOU out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Forgiveness is only possible when the offense is dealt with. You've probably heard the analogy, you can't just sweep it under the rug. The, the offense has to be handled. And God removed these offenses, not by pretending they didn't happen, but by nailing them to Christ's cross. Jesus took your record by being your substitute. He stood in your place. And he died a propitiation as a propitiation for your sins. That's a big word that means that he satisfied the wrath of God. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross, it was as if God reached down from heaven with your criminal record in one hand and his gavel of justice in the other and with one powerful stroke nailed your IOU to the cross. And it's done. It's gone. Your entire criminal record was eliminated because it was transferred to Christ's account. All the consequences you deserve, Jesus suffered for you. All the wrath that you should have been under, every drop of it that you should have drunk, Jesus drank it to the full for you. And when he completed your sentence as he hung on the cross, what did he call out? He called out, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in Your pardon is complete because Jesus died for you. You're forgiven. Your record expunged. Your sentence finished. We could keep heaping up phrases, but the glorious result of all of this is that you and I, when we are saved, don't owe God anything. We don't have an IOU anymore. At least when it comes to our sins. Certainly, we respond back to him with love and appreciation, but there's nothing in our criminal record that will hold against, that God will hold against us. There's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. But the cross also does something else. It, it's the center of redemptive history. And yes, it provided a full pardon for sinners, which we like to talk about, and rightfully so. But Paul then shifts to another dimension of the cross in verse 15 that's equally as powerful. He says that the cross was the source of defeat for all the forces of darkness. Look at verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, or your modern translations may say in him, in Jesus, or in Jesus' cross, it's essentially the same. The final way that you've been made complete in Christ is that your enemies have been conquered. And verse 15 completes this protective fence and actually links back to verse 10, where it says that Jesus is the head of all spiritual powers. God, through the cross, disarmed all hostile spiritual forces. The principalities and powers mentioned here refer to spiritual beings that have re rebelled against God. The Colossian heresy seems to include some teaching about spiritual beings because there's a number of references to angels in this book. In fact, in, in verse 18 of chapter 2, Paul says, don't go on worshiping angels. So there was something about appeasing spiritual forces that was at play here. And Paul's argument then is very simple. 
You don't need to worry about other spiritual powers because Jesus conquered them through his death on the cross. He disarmed them. And the word disarm literally means to strip off clothes, like you're changing. In this context, it implies that Jesus disarmed them. He removed their weapons. He stripped them of its power. He took them captive. But the victory doesn't stop there because God then publicly disgraced these hosts of darkness. He made a public spectacle of these powers and he celebrated his victory by shaming them through the cross. Now, if you look at the end of verse 15, there's the word triumphing. This is a really interesting word. If you want to go read about it later, I I think you'll find it very interesting. This word triumph referred to a Roman triumphal procession. It's the same word, which was a victory parade for conquering generals. It was the highest honor that a Roman general could receive. The triumph would remind the world of Rome's greatness and celebrate a major battle won. So upon returning from war, the procession wound through the streets of Rome. The victorious general rode through the city with his army. He paraded the defeated prisoners of war through the city, where they were subjected to abuse and mocking and revilement. Then he also displayed the spoils of war. To receive a triumph like this, this wasn't just an honor given out for every little skirmish here or there. To receive a triumph A general had to be the supreme commander of his army. He had to win a major battle. That moth is back for more. To receive a triumph, a general had to be the supreme commander of his army, win a major battle that finished the war, and killed at least 5,000 of the enemy. A triumphal parade celebrated lasting victory over a defeated and shamed enemy. That's what Jesus did. He is the glorious and the victorious general that won the battle that finishes the war, that took all the hosts and the enemies of of good, took them captive, and displayed the trophies of his grace, you and I. Jesus, through his death on the cross, redeemed the world, paid sin's penalty, and broke the curse. And and don't miss the irony here, that it was the cross that accomplished this, the cross that all the forces of darkness thought would spell defeat for Almighty God was actually the thing that defeated them. Instead of being their ultimate victory, the head of the snake was crushed at the cross. In the wisdom of God, the cross doesn't only redeem sinners, it defeats the enemy. And Jesus is the king. He is the head of all principalities and powers. He deserves all glory and honor. All praise and worship go to him. So, are you complete in Christ? Yes. And that knowledge ought to affect how you and I live and think. Because it's easy to hear a message like this and say, oh, that was really nice. Made a couple of good points. The the thing about the Romans, that was interesting. And it doesn't actually affect the way we live. And that's not what Paul would want. That's not what I want. That's not what the Lord Jesus wants. You remember Pollyanna? 
the Oscar that Haley Mills received didn't change her. She went back to normal life. After hearing these truths today, you cannot go back to normal life. These truths change the way we think and the way we live. How so? Consider three ways that these truths change us. First, Christ grants you the power to daily resist sin and walk with him. We all struggle to walk with the Lord. If we think that we don't, 1 John says that we lie and deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Which sins do you battle against? Which ones seem to beset you and be your constant sparring partner? Question, do those sins control you? It may feel like they do, but what is the truth? Is that their power has been stripped. You're not a slave to those things any longer. Sin no longer has dominion over you because you're a new person in Christ. Do you still sin? Absolutely. That's why Colossians 3 was written, to help us not to sin. But Jesus has defeated the power of sin. His power is greater. And, and, and therefore, for anyone here today discouraged in your battle against sin or in the mire of trying to fight against the desires that are in your heart that are pulling you to sin, this passage gives you strength and hope. Hope because Jesus' power is greater than the power of sin and strength because his power is given to you. As 2 Corinthians 12 says, his power is made perfect in your weakness. Remember what Paul prays for in Colossians 1.11? He says this, that you would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. What kind of power does Christ possess? Only enough power to rise from the dead and defeat all the hosts of darkness. And he offers that power to you when you beg him for it. Second, your unchanging relationship with God anchors you in difficult times. Because of what Jesus has accomplished, your relationship with God is certain. It's unchanging. He died and was raised to life, and anyone who believes in him will be forgiven. Full stop. God will never come back and retroactively unpardon you. His forgiveness is not conditional when you come by faith in Christ. He nailed your IOU to the cross. And therefore, there's no condemnation. You have a righteous standing with God. Your place in the family will never go away. Because you come to God through Christ, as long as Christ lives, then you're safe. And by the way, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus will never undie and unrise. As long as the eternal Son of God lives, the author of life, then you also have life. And so with that perspective, when you walk through a difficult time, and they will come, you don't need me to tell you that. When you walk through a difficult time knowing for certain that God is with you and that Christ is interceding for you and that these things are true no matter what happens to you, it gives you steel in your backbone. Yes, you feel hurt. Yes, you feel pain. But you stay strong because your Jesus is with you. He's not distant. He's not uncaring. He's tender and compassionate and powerful and wise. And so your relationship with him will keep you strong. Third, 
And finally, these truths enable you to treasure Jesus more deeply. One of the steps to treasuring Christ is to know Jesus intimately, to learn more and more about your treasure. And I hope that as a result of our message today, you understand more what Jesus did for you. Maybe you've discovered things about your salvation you've never thought about before. Well, what we learn with our minds should then evoke deeper love from our hearts. When you consider all that Christ did, the right response is worshiping your treasure for his supreme worth. Kate and I love uh, visiting national parks. Some of you do as well. And uh, on our honeymoon, we camped at Yosemite National Park. And something that she read or she says is that you get the most scenery per square inch at Yosemite. If you've ever been there, you agree with that because it's true. But we actually didn't see the beauty of the park right away. We entered the park at night. Our campsite was on the edge of the park in a forest. So we were ignorant of the beauty and the majesty that was really all around us. We couldn't see it. But when the, when the sun rose and when we drove into the valley the next morning, we stood in awe at the majestic scenery. It's incredible. We beheld the glory around us, if I can use that, that, that word. And we never forgot about it. We drove back to the campsite that night and just talked about it. We still talk about it. Hey, remember when we did this? Remember what we saw? Remember how amazing it was? Yes. Don't live the Christian life in ignorance. Looking at something so beautiful like this and then walking away and pretending like it never happened. Don't gaze on truths that tower above us like mountains and never talk about them and never think about them, never scale them. You are complete in Christ. Let us meditate on the glory of our Savior and be changed into his image. Let's pray together. Father, we're in awe, truly, we're, we're in awe at what Jesus did for us. That he didn't just come and, and, and skate through life and made it to the cross. He, he lived triumphantly from beginning to end. And through his death, he offered us a forgiveness. He provided the basis for it. He, he stripped away the old man so that we could be free from the power of sin. He conquered the forces of darkness and wiped our offenses away. What glorious truths that, that, that shake us to our core, that, that bring us to you in worship. And as we go this week, may we meditate on how we are complete in you, how there is nowhere else we need to turn for forgiveness or for strength or for power or for wonder even. In Jesus, we have all we need. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow along.